Welcome, everybody, to Shaping Vaping, our weekly conversation into the latest in vaping policy. Um, our guest this week is Dr. Charles Gardner, who, as the executive director of INCO, leads an organization with something in common with the American vapor manufacturers in that we are both founded and supported by former smokers. Um, on uh, Dr. Gardner's end, his organization is a consumer-focused organization, and AVM is an organization uh, made up of small businesses uh, who our former smokers themselves. So we're very excited to have you today, Dr. Gardner. Amanda, <clears throat> you should be calling me Charles, please. I will do that. Thank you. Um, it's been a while since I've had the pleasure of speaking with you. I'm really excited you're on the space today. Uh, I'm very happy to be here, and I'm happy to see a lot of friends here. This is really great. Um, I expected... Um, the listeners to be a lot of people in the industry. Um, and I, I see that, but I, I actually see a lot of people who are, are just advocates as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our audience has uh, been uh, becoming a little more wide ranging. We've been doing the space every Monday for about two months now, and uh, we're building up a, a very good listenership here, a, a wide array of people with uh, interest in the topic. Uh, do you want to start off by telling us a bit about INCO for our listeners? Just a quick question. So so is is this then widely available on social media? I'm not familiar with the Twitter space. It is. So uh, on the Twitter space, for the space itself, you have to catch it live, but we do record and archive all of our weekly discussions on our website and then also on Spotify podcast and Apple Music. So they're available uh, for later listening. All right. So so let's think about the players here. So there's there's the evil tobacco industry. They've been around for more than 100 years and uh, and they very clearly did things that are reprehensible 40, 30, even 20 years ago. God knows what they're doing now. Um, and then there's the new safer nicotine industry, which is producing e-cigarettes and snooze and nicotine pouches and heat not burn. And that becomes... This whole gamish of, of some of them now, big tobacco companies, uh, a lot of vape companies, which Amanda, you know very well, are uh, often formed uh, and led by people who are ex-smokers and you know, are safer nicotine users themselves. And, and then we, we need to emphasize that there are just advocates there are people who are using safer nicotine, people who use safer nicotine. Uh, and, um, and many of them have quit smoking, uh, have experienced firsthand. Uh, they have personal experience. They have lived experience. They're healthier. We have you know, fewer lung infections our dentists tell us that our gums don't bleed anymore, <laughs> and um, we 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 have we have no erectile dysfunction. Our 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 willies are just fine, and and so we actually we we know what's going on, and we see the misinformation. And so Inco is a nonprofit organization that represents and supports the rights and the well-being of of 98 million people worldwide who are using safer nicotine to avoid toxic forms of tobacco. That's a lot of people, but it, I mean, it, it's, it pales in, in, in comparison to the 1.3 billion people who, uh, around the world who are using the more toxic forms of tobacco, but this is going to be a growing movement. And so we're advocates and we're, we're the consumers and we're, we're the people who use this psychoactive drug and w which let's just say that's what it is. But then so is caffeine, right? Um, uh, caffeine is the most widely used psychoactive drug on earth. 90% of, of adults on the planet 
uh, use caffeine. And so I, I think we need to begin to kind of change the dialogue here, change the the reference points people have about nicotine because it's been so demonized. Uh, but uh, I look forward to the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. I uh, agree with, with everything you just stated. And uh, for me, it's been really special, you know, as a, as a former smoker, as a user of these products and also as a business owner to be a part of this fight. And, you know, I've been so grateful for all of your work over the years um, you have done just an impressive job, especially with, with your credentials, your background and your expertise of, of, you know, really collecting accurate data, disseminating that data, challenging some of the false science that comes out and just really being an all around amazing advocate for uh, tobacco harm reduction and reduced risk products. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I wanted to start off talking about Michael Bloomberg, everyone's uh, favorite <laughs> philanthropist here, right? Um, to give our listeners some quick background, Michael Bloomberg made his billion selling real-time stock market information to traders on Wall Street. Uh, he used the fortune from that to run for mayor of New York and in 2020 tried and failed to run for president of the United States. But uh, more relevant to our purpose, along the way, he's also donated billions of dollars to a wide array of global organizations and anti-vaping advocacy groups like the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, uh, all in the name of advancing his ideas and agenda. And so I wanted to start off by asking you how much money Bloomberg has donated to the World Health Organization, and what is it that he's asking them to do with that money? Well, and that's an interesting question because I don't know the exact answer to it, um, and and I'll just need to say that. But when the World Health Organization produced a, an absolutely reprehensible report just uh, four or five months ago um, saying that these new and emerging nicotine products are uh, a threat to public health, uh, the... Uh, the foundation that Bloomberg supports, Bloomberg Philanthropies, took credit for that World Health Organization report, and the World Health Organization itself thanked Bloomberg Philanthropies for funding that report. And the report itself, if you read it, uh, says this report was funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies. So what we've got is a, a report from the World Health Organization that um, is, um, is, I mean, it's, it's very diametrically opposed to tobacco harm reduction and safer nicotine um, that uh, is funded by one American billionaire who's 79 and is going to turn 80 on um, February 14th, by the way, mm -hmm. Valentine's Day. Um, and I, I, I do want us to start thinking about the, um, the birthday cards that we could begin to think about sending him. Um, so, but it's, it's, so, well, let me back up a moment here. Bloomberg actually funds through his philanthropies, a lot of good work, uh, and on climate change, on strengthening cities, on even on drug harm reduction. Uh, and so, and, you know, he's, he's, he's not a public health person, right? So he's taking advice from a lot of people around him about where he, where that money should go. And, um, and unfortunately, the people who have his ear on tobacco harm reduction are uh, a guy named, um, Tom Frieden, who's a former director of the CDC, who um, is someone I actually know pretty well because we were both in India together at the same time. Uh, I've been to his home. I've met his wife. And then Matt Myers, who's the head of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. And so in, in international terms, the funding from Bloomberg Philanthropies that goes for to support uh, 50 or 60 kind of astroturf um, invented 
nonprofit organizations, NGOs around the world in, in numerous countries. Um, it, it's funded and, and funneled through Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and another organization, which you haven't mentioned, called the Union. Um, and the Union is based in the, the EU. And by having these two different um, grantees running their international work, which influences policymakers in um, dozens and dozens of low-income countries, um, which provides them with draft uh, legislation and and, um, and 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 positions and pushes uh, media articles in in their local news media. They're they're able to go back and forth between campaign for tobacco for kids and the union to avoid uh, some tax restrictions that 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 would prevent you from lobbying for specific bills or supporting specific uh, lawmakers and politicians. Uh, and and I, I have to be blunt. I honestly don't think Mike Bloomberg knows what's actually going on. Uh, and, and that um, he just thinks he's saving people from smoking and the evils of tobacco and the evil of nicotine. I mean, which is, which is kind of part of the, the church of anti-tobacco dogma. Um, and so, it, so we, we did, um, Inco produced a dossier which outlines some of this, but I would say, you know, we put a lot of work into that, but it is no, by no means the full um, exploration of where that funding goes. And Mike Bloomberg has spent well over a billion dollars on his tobacco control efforts, um, and I would say some of which are good, um, o- over the past 10 years. Um, but he's currently spending about $152 million a year uh, in, in those areas, including the more than $50 million per year that's now going to ban um, e-cigarette flavors specifically in the United States. But then, you know, of course, that has repercussions that go worldwide. The U.S. is the kind of epicenter of the misinfodemic. And we talked a lot about that misinfodemic um, in the dossier. Um, and so I would I would um, urge everyone to just go take a take a glance. Um, you, all you have to do is Google Inco, I-N-N-C-O, N as in November, and dossier, if you know how to spell dossier. Uh, and it, it's the first thing that pops up. Uh, and it's, it's, our, it's our first attempt, but uh, I understand that some additional uh, studies are, are, are going to come online quite soon um, that, that take a, an even deeper look at this. Uh, and I, but I would, you know, seriously hope and wish that a team of, of real investigative journalists, if there are any left, could, um, could, could unravel all of this because it's, it's very opaque. The funding is very opaque. The, um, the NGOs that, uh, you know, just like the, the tobacco free kids funded NGO in Kenya, which is, is just, um, you know, on a weekly basis producing demonstrably false statements. Uh, on it, 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 um, it is, it is a misinfodemic. It is funded by one American billionaire. And the, and the only way to think about this is as if that World Health Organization report that I mentioned at the beginning of this was a report on vaccines and had been entirely funded by one U.S. billionaire anti-vaxxer. Uh, there's no other way to put this. And the, and the fact that the world hasn't kind of awakened to the fact that um, the tobacco control 
discourse has been captured and is now funded by one American billionaire is a, a little disturbing to me. To, to say the very least. And for our live listeners, uh, we've got a featured tweet in the space here that links to that dossier. Um, and I, I really wanted to commend you for the effort that went into that. It's a fantastic document. And I would reiterate uh, urging our listeners to go ahead and go read that. Uh, I really thank you for your work on that. It is a, a shadowy funding network for sure. I know folks like yourself and Michelle Minton have done a lot of good work, um, you know, trying to trace that down and, and sketch out, you know, how that influence and that money is is put to work to develop these very bad policies and in, in some cases to expose you know, outright corruption between some of these Bloomberg-funded organizations and some of these governments around the world, I, I and particularly that, people inside the World Health Organization. I think that Lindsay Stroud is also doing some work in this area. But yes, I and I I think that I think that Inco is the first um, to have actively demonstrated uh, against Michael Bloomberg for his funding of of the misinfodemic about safer nicotine. So, and we did that uh, on uh, just a few weeks ago, in fact, um, November uh, 10th in London, in front of Bloomberg headquarters, Bloomberg corporate headquarters in London. Um, we were told by the security people there that, that we had awakened people in Bloomberg uh, corporate headquarters in the United States, uh, because of course we were doing that early in the morning, and 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 for for Americans that would have been uh, really early in the morning, and I'm happy for that. But and we delivered um, we delivered an award to Michael Bloomberg for unleashing this misinfodemic, a uh, a beautiful black plaque um, naming him as. Uh, as the awardee a bit like the ignoble prize right a little riff on that not the kind of prize that you would want i would assume uh, so i wanted to ask you a few questions about the dossier that you put out recently really was a fantastic document uh you you wrote that bloomberg and his philanthropy enterprises are determined to obstruct the availability of new nicotine alternatives. And I wonder if you would walk us through uh, the evidence for why you've made this bold assertion. Uh, um, so, I mean, there's, there's one question, which is why they hold that position, which is not what you're asking. But the assertion is um, that they have... Um, they have funded uh, activities that they have a kind of a propaganda machine uh, underway um, to undermine a, a kind of, you know, big tobacco 40 years ago was, was using, they, they perfected merchants of doubt tactics, which is just, just uh, convince the public that um, experts disagree. Right. Um, and, so, you know, ironically, you have this propaganda effort, which is on the philanthropic side, uh, about three quarters of that is funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies, and then another quarter of it is funded by the Truth Initiative. So we should not forget them. We're talking about more than $200 million a year um, in spending by these two foundations uh, that's going toward, and the, both of which are, are are in their in their in their spending diametrically opposed to tobacco harm reduction. Um, though strangely, the Truth Initiative has statements on their website saying that they they endorse tobacco harm reduction. But um, so so. Bloomberg Philanthropies uh, funds more than 50 NGOs around the world. Uh, and all of them are required to uh, kind of toe the line. It's kind of like you, you, you're required to 
uh, recite the church dogma. Uh, and what has trickled out, and believe me, there's a lot more behind this, although I sound like a conspiracy theorist when I say that, uh, there's a lot that, that, that can't yet be said. But we, we do know, for example, just to take one example, um, in Latin America, uh, countries have adopted anti-e-cigarette legislation Numerous countries have adopted anti-e-cigarette legislation that was basically drafted by a lawyer from the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, and it's, it's using identical language in Spanish. Uh, we obviously know what's happened in the Philippines. We had to be very careful in the dossier that we didn't like overreach with, with some of the things that we know are going on. But in the Philippines, uh, members of the Philippines parliament have uh, have, uh, Philippines Congress have 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 actually made these accusations that um, that that the local NGOs, non-governmental organizations funded by the by Bloomberg Philanthropies, um, basically paid the Philippines Food and Drug Administration to take a particular policy position, which was strongly opposed to to safer nicotine uh, that that is is still playing out but there are there are similar stories in numerous other countries uh, and I, this is this is like there is it's it's just so ironic because they're doing exactly what they what many people in the tobacco control community accuse the tobacco industry of doing it's just like working behind the scenes um, with, through opaque, um, op opaque flows of funding and astroturf organizations in numerous countries. Uh, and, and this is where we end up. I mean, what, what would happen if we had a, a, an American billionaire who was diametrically opposed to nicotine patches and nicotine gum. I mean, was, was uh, spending $152 million a year to, to oppose them because it's just switching one addiction for another. Right. Uh, right. You would have a very different view of nicotine patches and nicotine gum because that would change the public discourse. Um, and, it wouldn't change the facts. Right. Ab absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's so strange that that one particular philanthropy organization has been able to rewrite so much of the narrative around something that for anybody that's ever used these products uh, can tell you very well that they're absolutely life changing for the better. Right. And so to see somebody spend so much time misaligning a product that's been so helpful to so many, it's it's it's, you know, flat out evil. And, you know, I mean, as an opinion, I can certainly say that I saw this morning that uh, Bloomberg earned a spot in the Consumer Choice Center's uh, super villains uh, NFT pack that they released this morning, which I thought was a very uh sort of funny way to look at a very serious uh, topic. I appreciated the humor in it because if anybody's earned supervillain status, I would definitely say, you know, it would be Bloomberg at the top of the list, you know, followed by, you know, his helpers in the campaign for tobacco free kids and at the WHO and the FDA, um, you know, so, so, so many people, you know, colluding to create this absolutely disastrous outcome for people that just want to quit smoking. Right. But let's, um, but let's be, let's be very clear. It's, it's very easy to pick out one individual here. And I, I, I just don't assume that Mike Bloomberg himself, he's a real human being really understands the issues involved. And, you know, I kind of feel sorry for him. And I, I feel sorry that his, his legacy um, as he turns 80 and, and moving, it becomes an octogenarian. Um, it, it, it's not, you know, as people look back on this time, 10 years in the future, his legacy is not going to be good. Um, and, and there will be quantifiable death tolls 
the, there will be body bags, as, as Greg uh, Conley uh, has, uh, it's a great mental image. This, this, this is not, in, in some ways, it's not his doing. It's the people whispering in his ear. And, and Bloomberg Philanthropies is not the only villain here, nor is uh, tr the Truth Initiative, um, which is led by Robin Koval, who has no public health experience. Um, th th there is a larger issue um, where the tobacco control field is, is in a transition now. It's, in, it's, in a, it's at a kind of an inflection point, um, you know, a, if anybody knows the history of science, Thomas Kuhn talked about paradigm shifts in science, like the shift from uh, thinking that the universe revolves around the earth to understanding that the earth moves around the sun. We're at that point because what happens at those changing points, those paradigm shifts, is that evidence arises, evidence, uh, evidence that contradicts the existing paradigm. We're stuck in the existing paradigm right now. And, and we're talking thousands of researchers around the world are still stuck in that paradigm. And it's not just Bloomberg. It's not just uh, the Truth Initiative. It's, it's a kind of a whole kind of group think uh, that is, is happening in tobacco control. But thank heaven, uh, an increasing number of experts in that field are actually looking at the evidence and they're seeing uh, the evidence that nicotine vapes and other safer nicotine alternatives are safer than smoking and help smokers quit. And if you just accept those two statements, then these, these things uh, are profoundly different from a recreational drug like alcohol or caffeine or cannabis, they, they save lives. Right. Abs absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted, I wanted to ask you in your report, you talk about Ivali a bit um, and you say that Ivali uh, described later as the fake health crisis uh, the case of Avali reportedly triggered Bloomberg's anti-vaping backing to the tune of $160 million through Bloomberg Philanthropies over a three-year period, specifically to push for nicotine vape flavor bans. As you note in your report, vitamin E acetate added to illicit cannabis products was the problem, uh, not nicotine products. And I wanted to know, in your opinion, why isn't the WHO being held accountable to correct the record on Evali? Well, as, as you know, more than 75 uh, experts with no tobacco ties have written to the director of the CDC. So the epicenter of that infodemic is the CDC, uh, asking, asking her to change the name of Ivali. Just a simple, a simple correction. Uh, and her response has been, well, we did let the public know. Well, no, you, you didn't. Um, we, we know for a fact that um, over the course of the late of late 2019 and early 2020, the number of people who were vaping THC who understood there might be some risks decreased while the number of people who were vaping nicotine who falsely believed that it was nicotine vapes or e-cigarettes that were the cause of that. And I always put this in quotations when I write it, Ivali, um, the vaping related lung injuries, uh, that, that increased. So we, we, we ended up with a, a public more misinformed at the end of that, thanks to largely the CDC. Um, and so uh, what I would assume our kind of bumbling Michael Bloomberg just assumed that that, you know, was partly or largely caused by 
nicotine vapes or e-cigarettes and that that uh, was used by the people whispering into his ear to convince him to put to put that 160 million dollars into banning flavored vapes. I think you're right. And and one of the things that, that, you know, when I sit back and I really look at what happened with the misinformation surrounding Yavali and, you know, the people who were very active in creating that misinformation, you know, over the years, advocates for safer nicotine products, you know, had really been able to the point to the fact that these products have killed absolutely no one. And, you know, we can still point to that fact. But with Yavali, I think, you know, some of these... Um, you know, anti-nicotine folks saw an opportunity to to really wave the flag that, look, see, these products are killing people. You know, we told you they were bad. Um, when, in fact, we, we know very well that, that these products do quite the opposite. They extend people's lives when they make the switch to these products. And they, they've never killed anyone, right? Um, obviously, you know, when you've got vitamin E, acetate, and illegal cannabis products being the real culprit here, um, it's, it's sort of a cheap shot for them to, to make a point, you know, using a little bit of smoke and mirrors misdirection. And I really see it as them, you know, jumping on the opportunity to point to um, you know, some right. really extreme health outcomes that, that never happened with nicotine vaping. But it's really, t- it's, it's taking advantage of ignorance. So, <coughs> excuse me, in, in the United States, two thirds of uh, adults have never smoked and never vaped, right? One third of uh, American adults are either current or former smokers, um, so two thirds of, of people have no frame of reference for this. And so it's very easy to convince them that like all vaping is the same. Uh, they don't understand that nicotine and THC vaping involve entirely different devices, liquids, supply chains, people and purposes. I mean, one gets you high and the other helps smokers quit and thus not die. And um, it's, it's, but it's very easy to kind of lump them all into the same problem category in people's minds. And people are very, very fear, fearful of, of new things. There's actually a lot of research on that. So things that you uh, can't control, things that you can't see, and things like radiation, and, and things that are new are, are scary. Um, the, there's a, a great innovation economist named Calestis Juma who talked about the, um, the, the reaction, the public reaction to various innovations over history. Um, we're always afraid of the new thing. And it always takes time. And I think this is also key. This is not the end of the line uh, by a long shot. We will win eventually in the end. Um, But that it takes time for the public to kind of come around. And part of what we have to learn uh, here is from people in the drug harm reduction space and and other somewhat related uh, advocacy areas like people living with neurodiversity and, and, and the LGBTQ community. I mean, all of these communities which smoke at much higher rates than the, the general population have faced battles and, and partially or, 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 or completely won them. Um, and we need to learn from, from that history because we're in a very, very long battle here. But eventually what happens is that people come around and people come around because public health, public opinion begins to change because uh, more voices of people like us who are former smokers and, and use safer nicotine get heard. And then a few journalists kind of trickle in and then, you know, and then as public opinion begins to change, more politicians begin to take a look at the actual facts and begin to change policy. This is going to be a long, long battle. I agree. And, you know, I, I think to to a sort of silver lining, 
I, we're, we're seeing that, at least I'm seeing that start to happen now, you know, these early stages of a change. You know, as you said, you know, all the people that wrote into the CDC to request that name change on Ebali, uh, the SRNT15, um, so many people that have been speaking out lately, very respected people, you know, with, with quite a pedigree behind them in tobacco control are coming out and, and, you know, starting to make the case that the tobacco control community is not united behind this anti-vaping effort, that there are people inside of the tobacco control world that, that do see the value and place for these products and, you know, have gone so far to, to even suggest, you know, rather sophisticated policies that, that thread that needle between allowing adults access and, you know, keeping youth from starting and initiating on these products. And so, you know, I think even now we're starting to see a little bit of that. The media coverage is, is not evolving as quickly as I would like to see it, but certainly we are seeing, you know, public health voices that, that are starting to become a little louder and get heard a little more. And I'm, I, for one, am very hopeful that that, that is a signal of, of, of a tide that's building, right? Something that, that will gain momentum as time goes on here. Um, but I wanted to, to turn now and, and talk about a topic in your report that I know is very near and dear to your heart and that you are excellent at covering, uh, which is specifically the decline in youth vaping and how Bloomberg, <laughs> FDA, FDA, CDC, and the media are misreporting all of these incredible facts that are coming out of the NYTS um, latest findings. You would almost think if you read the mainstream coverage of this, you would almost think there was no reduction in youth use whatsoever, you know, when quite the opposite has been true. And so I just wanted to know if you could walk us through the disconnect between the headlines about the National Youth Tobacco Survey's findings and what the data actually tells us about youth vaping rates. Oi. <laughs> It's, it's That's a like big where, one, right? It's like where to begin. So um, uh, current teen use of nicotine vapes is lower now than it was in 2014, would, long before the FDA declared an epidemic. Uh, we've seen a 62% drop in teen use, uh, and that's high school plus middle school, uh, over the past two years. And if you if you then look at total teen nicotine use over the past 20 years, which is smoking plus vaping, we're, we're now well less than half what it was 20 years ago. So this paranoia about, you know, uh, nicotine harms developing brains and stuff. I mean, it doesn't even it doesn't make any sense even in that regard. Um, and back in, in my day when I was in high school, um, something like 30% of, of teens were smoking. Um, and so, so, so here we are. Teen smoking has plummeted about three times faster than historical trends over the past 10 years. And those data are collected by the National Youth Tobacco Survey, uh, which Amanda calls the NYTS, which is correct. Um, and, uh, but it's, it's very odd and interesting that in the morbidity and mortality weekly report that came out on the NYTS 2021, they just focused on vaping, not smoking. So we don't know what happened to teen smoking. Uh, historically over the past 10 years, every time teen vaping dropped and it did drop. It dropped in 2015 and 2016. Teen smoking stopped dropping when that happened. Now, teen vaping has plummeted 62%. Basically, two-thirds of teens just stopped vaping, which is not really consistent with a highly addictive substance. Um, and I'm, I'm actually quite concerned that we're, that we're going to discover that uh, teen smoking increased. It's, it's already extremely low. Uh, as of 2020, only 4.6% of teens were smoking at all, which means past 30-day ever use. Uh, and, and the daily smoking rate was less than 1%. But if that creeps up a bit, I, you know, I'm not surprised. And there is evidence from the Monitoring the Future survey, which is... Um, NIA, National Institutes of Health, National Institute on Drug Abuse, University of Michigan survey that, that teen smoking 
has crept up a bit, but it's, it's up from a very tiny, tiny level. So here we have incontrovertible evidence, evidence that teen vaping was this amount in 2019. And it was this amount in 2020. And it was this amount today in 2021. And that's a 62% drop. You can just go Google the FDA infographics that cover the NYTS. And you'll see this. And yet nobody seems to know it. And all of the anti-vaping organizations are continuing to push the data from 2019 because that was the peak the peak of what I would call a fad not an epidemic and it's it's also really interesting to to just note that when teen vaping really jumped up a significant amount between 2017 and 2018 the FDA produced an infographic showing the percentage increase so that was the screaming headline of their infographic. Look at this huge percent increase. Now, teen vaping has dropped 62%. So the infographic that's coming out of the FDA is just a flat line. Here are, here are the number who, 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 who vape, which is, it's 2 million. Okay, it seems like a lot of kids until you understand that that's past 30-day ever use and most of that is in frequent use uh, and the percentage that are vaping frequently is 4.9 percent and the percentage who are vaping daily is 3.1 percent and so they're they're not giving the full context they're not giving the full picture and i can't see this as anything other than deliberate because if you actually look at that infographic from the fda it says in very small print among those who are currently vaping and then in gigantic font it says one in four are vaping daily um and even the fda was confused by that we i mean if if anyone's seen that they they tweeted out that one in four teens are vaping daily that's not correct it's one in four teens who were current users are vaping daily it's three percent basically but members of congress have been misinformed by that and numerous journalists have been misinformed by that it's really hard not to see this as a deliberate effort to misinform the public right Uh, not only is it really hard to see it that way i think uh anyone with with you know any common sense you know confronted with the facts of this would would absolutely recognize it as a as a deliberate effort to mislead uh policymakers as well as the general public uh but before we uh move into our media lapdog segment which is our weekly segment here on the space where we dive into uh some of the negative and misinformed media coverage of the week. I wanted to highlight another document you just released. Uh, You call it a policy brief, seven things policymakers and journalists need to know. And uh, we're featuring that in the space right now. All of our live listeners can see the link to go read that. Uh, I wanted to know if you could just briefly walk us through that document. (laughs) Oh, I I would have to pull it up. But so, so this is, an effort to address um, each of the myths. Uh, and within this document, it's meant to be a, you know, it's what policymakers call a one pager. Uh, and it's meant for policymakers, um, politicians, right? And, um, and also for journalists. And I, I would love more people to see this. There is like, Everything in that document is either um, hyperlinked to a, an official government survey or a peer-reviewed study. Um, and with apologies to anyone who's listening internationally, it, it's very U.S.-centric. Uh, but I, I think that's justifiable because so much of the mis- misinformation comes from the United States these days. Um, and, and, you know, the 
basic questions are, are these things safer than smoking? Uh, do they help smokers quit? If so, how many smokers have quit with these gizmos? Uh, and it's not, it's not entirely, it's not just about vaping, but, but the, that particular policy document is, is largely focused on vaping. Um, isn't it interesting that we know exactly how many smokers have quit with e-cigarettes in the UK because the public health service tracks that number, but we don't, we don't really know how many um, have quit in the United States. The U.S. population is six times larger than the U.K. population, um, 2.3 million in the U.K. What is it in the United States? Why aren't we tracking that number? Why is that not a, 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 a you know, an extremely important number that the CDC and the FDA are tracking? Uh, but we can make some guesses at that based on CDC data from the National Health Interview Survey, and it's it's you know it's more than uh, well over four million in the United States. It's probably closer to six million, um, and we have some numbers for for the EU, but the document also goes into some of the unwanted or unintended consequences of the various things that we're doing to restrict e-cigarette use, taxing. Uh, banning flavors, banning uh, or restricting restricting nicotine levels, uh, making uh, making them less accessible. Most of my career has focused on access to medicines and vaccines for HIV, TB, malaria, dengue, rabies, and always the the, the three things we were talking about there were. Um, affordability and accessibility and acceptability to the users, because there's no point in developing a new product, a new drug, for example, uh, un unless it's acceptable to the people at the bedside. Um, and everything we're doing um, focused on e-cigarettes today in the United States and in many other countries is focused is is um, is all about reducing the affordability of safer nicotine products, reducing access to those safer nicotine products, and reducing their acceptability to users. So so then you, you know, can raise questions about their effectiveness for smoking cessation. Well, if everybody's misinformed about them, and they're less affordable. Um, than cigarettes and less accessible and less acceptable because you've killed off the things that, that smokers need to quit. Um, you've just killed the efficacy. Uh, and so um, that uh, document, I would, I would encourage everybody to share uh, because just more share it with your politicians, share it with journalists. It's, there's nothing in there that isn't, um, verifiably true. That's the that's the damn thing. That you can you can stare at the at, at the absolute demonstrable facts, which are diametrically opposed to the uh, kind of house of cards that's been erected against safer nicotine products. And uh, and and number one, nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> and. Uh, Number two, nobody will believe you if you tell them because you sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist. Sometimes conspiracies are true, though, right? <laughs> just because just because they're conspiracies doesn't mean they're only theories, right? Um, you've got to be a little careful with that logic, but it is often true. Um, so I, I wanted to uh, skip around and dive into our media lapdog segment. We have a couple of pieces that I don't think we're going to spend too much time on because we already um, discussed in depth the problems with reporting on NYTS. But we'll throw up a couple of tweets in the space in case anybody wants to go check these out. One um, was a piece that Michelle Minton pointed out when she was on the space recently in the Indie Star. You know, they were manipulating 
some of the National Youth Tobacco Survey data to misrepresent that. And then we saw that happen again in the Politico piece that came out about the Califf nomination to be the new FDA commissioner. Um, but we'll uh, we'll kind of skip that for now. But those would be two really prime examples of how these numbers are constantly um, misinterpreted. But for the last five minutes of our space, um, I wanted to focus on uh, two studies that have been coming out and getting a lot of media attention lately. And I know I've seen you tweet uh, about these several times. I know you've been collecting data um, to look into one of these. And so I'd be happy to get your thoughts on these. But Health Day promoted a flawed study claiming that vaping causes gene mutations. But the sample size of the study was a whopping 82 participants. Uh, even the authors themselves note that this is a serious lim limitation and not generalizable to the entire population. Yet we see reporters consistently run rampant with preliminary studies like these that, that have very severe limitations. Uh, the second one I wanted to focus on, uh, we spotted how Business Insider and the New York Post were hyping a study claiming that vaping causes erectile dysfunction. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, as, as a female, I'm going to kind of tread lightly on this topic. But uh, again, this is an instance where we saw a study that had serious limitations. Uh, quote said, given its cross-sectional nature, inferences about the temporality of using or quitting ends and the development of erectile dysfunction, and therefore causality cannot be made. Ray, which is a pretty big disclaimer. I just want to get your thoughts on, on those two studies and, and some of the flaws in those. All right. So, I mean, if you look at the, so if you look at the first study, which is about um, changing gene expression, uh, and, and my background is in molecular biology and developmental biology, um, but I, I was applying molecular biology techniques toward uh, uh, um, understanding brain development. Changing gene expression is not necessarily a harm. So the, the word they use is a loaded word. They call it dysregulation. Um, but it, it's, it's really just changing gene expression. And if all you have to do is take a quick glance at that study, and it shows that the changed gene expression, which means some genes are upregulated and some are downregulated, it's 87% higher for smokers than it is for vapors. And, and then there's, there's absolutely no evidence that the, those changes in vapors are associated with harms. But this is the kind of study that gets, you know, massive screaming headlines based on um, press releases written by people at universities who you know, are science writers with, without, without a lot of context and background themselves. Um, it, it reminded me a lot of uh, the study that was produced by the American Heart Association last year, which showed heart health biomarkers in the blood of people who vape are indistinguishable from the biomarkers for heart health in people who never smoked. And so the press release that they produced was that the headline was people who vape and smoke have the same risks as people who only smoke, right? Which is logically equivalent to people who vape and juggle live hand grenades uh, have the same risks as people who juggle high, live hand grenades alone. That there is, you know, the, the, the bias in the, in the presentation of the facts is, is profound. The erectile dysfunction <laughs> study is kind of funny because there, <clears throat> it's, it's, a, it's actually it's a, actually a very small risk for people who smoke that this erectile dysfunction things like it, it, it's a very low percentage. Uh, but, but there is an association and possibly causal. Um, so most of the people who vape that were in that study, what was it? 83 per people are, are former smokers, right? So who knows how long that, um, effect lasts. 
so I, I did a, um, I did uh, uh, what um, I have called the wonky willy survey uh, starting about um, six days ago. Um, and it's not completed yet, but it has more than 503 votes or 503 people answering the question. This was for men who are ex-smokers, who are vaping nicotine, um, and with apologies to everybody in the, in the, in the, um, in the better sex. Um, this was just for men, uh, for obvious reasons. And the question was, since I switched from smoking to vaping, my willy has uh, either died or it works, but it's wonky or didn't notice any change or it came back to life. So, so in the survey, uh, more than 500 people have responded and more than 23% of them say their um, erectile function has improved. So, and, and here's a, is a, is a kind of profound observation from all of the, the harm reports we get. There is an absolute focus on harms and an absolute blindness to the, to the possibility that, for example, people who switch from smoking to vaping have fewer lung infections. We all do. Almost all of us do. This is, a, this is and there's only one peer-reviewed study. Well, no, I, I would say two peer-reviewed studies that show this. Um, and, you know, from Peter Hayek, for example. And this is, this, this um, lack of focus on the actual health improvements in people who switch from smoking to vaping is, uh, is it's just profoundly unethical. Uh, but, but basically 73, 83, 93, 96, 97, 97% of men re respond to say they're just fine. Their penis works just fine. <laughs> so um, I, I have to say, you know, and, and, and remember, this is covering a group of people, many of whom started vaping 10 or more years ago. As you age, these things tend to go. It's like with male pattern bald, baldness and, and, and uh, your teeth falling out. And, you know, we're aging, too. So if, if, uh, if, uh, it looks like, uh, you know, 1% said, uh, they're not doing as well, that is probably due to aging. And if you looked at any population of 500 men over a period of 10 years, you'd probably find, uh, their willies aren't working as well there too. Well, Dr. Gardner, that's uh, that's all the time that we have today. But thank you. What a what a great way to conclude the episode. So thank you for uh, continuing to defend accurate data and accurate information and doing some of that original research. Um, we can't thank you enough for joining the space today. For all of our listeners, uh, make sure that you're following um, Dr. Gardner on Twitter. Amanda, make sure. yes, sir. I I know we're running over time. Can I can I just add? something I think is in, incredibly important. Of course. So if you look at the population of people who smoke in the United States or the UK or, or countries that have got their smoking rates down to 14, 15%, almost all the smokers are people living with mental health conditions or, or people who are homeless or people who are in the LGBTQ community or low-income people or in the United States case, indigenous peoples, uh, or people who are using illicit drugs. We should not be surprised when people who switch to safer nicotine alternatives are, represent the same communities and uh, are in many cases, like with mental health, are using nicotine because it helps them. It is, um, they're self-medicating because it reduces their symptoms. 
it lowers anxiety, it lowers feelings of depression, and it dozens and dozens of studies with nicotine patches show it helps adults living with ADHD, bipolar disorder, autism, uh, schizophrenia, Tourette's syndrome, and a whole list of other neurodiversity issues. This is our next frontier, and we need to start focusing on this. Uh, because it turns out a lot of people in the advocacy community that I represent, we're all there. We're, that we're high-functioning people living with some of these issues. I could not agree more. You know, I have so many uh, friends and colleagues in this space that that have you know received tremendous help and benefit uh, from these products. You know, with some of those very issues that that you mentioned. Um, so definitely something that, that we will keep talking about, and I know that you will keep talking about. And thank you so much for, for all of the great information that you shared with us today. And we would be delighted to have you back in the future to go a little more in depth on, on some of those other topics. But thank you very much for your time. And we hope everyone will join us next week uh, for our Twitter space at uh, 3 p.m. Eastern next Monday. Thanks, everybody. 